finishing up Jason and Leo and I had a bit of a nice chat that we recorded that we're going to be showing, I think, sometime Sunday evening, uh, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, so save the date for that. Um, it's going to be essentially we pulled a bunch of clips from Protocol Labs about Web3 and the idea of new financing for open source software for the open air digital prison that's going to be linked into um, uh, public goods financing. So that was sort of the, the overall scheme. And it's about maybe it'll be probably about a three hour talk once Jason gets done editing it. So, um, so we just finished that up, but I thought I wanted to spend a little bit of time tonight getting ready for, uh, rocking Friday night uh, at the kitchen table of the McDowell household um, to spend a little bit of time on a part of the map that I haven't talked about yet that is related to um, this Banco uh, Palmas uh, program. And uh, it's linked through to uh, this gentleman, Carlos de Freitas, who was part of the Descent uh, program. And uh, the reason that I think it's important, clearly there's been a lot of um, like upheaval around the elections in Brazil. And going back, I was looking and realizing that um, Lula was actually a key figure in sort of setting up the solidarity economy in Brazil. That's going to be um, the Banco Palmas is a community centered banking system that got into digital currency and I think is going to be a leader in scaling this idea of universal basic income. Uh, through digital pro programmable money. Um, and so I wanted to sort of talk about that. And then I remembered that way back in January, I had actually done a series about Brazil and social impact finance in Brazil. And um, uh, for some reason, I actually left off the last, um, the last installment I never posted. And it's actually kind of helpful because it, it has a lot to do with um, gaming and uh, simulations and uh, smart cities. And so given what I've been, just been talking about with uh, the uh, uh, social prescribing and game theory and econophysics and biophysics, I actually feel like I, I have a deeper level of understanding of what I wrote back in January now than I did when I finished it. So I ended up posting that today and I'm going to attach this video uh, talking about the, the solidarity economy and Banco Palmas uh, Brazil uh, along with that post today. So I'm just gonna move over to do the picture in the picture so you get the full view. Uh, so as for people who have been following along some of my other talks, uh, sort of the centerpiece of this map that we've got going here is the map keeps growing. Let me see, oh, there it is, there's the whole map. Um, it's, it's quite large at this point and I keep adding to it. Uh, let's see, what was I working on today? Mostly I was sort of finishing up some stuff around here around the, the Bitcoin to Burning Man, uh, filling in that bit and working a little bit on John Clippinger over here. Uh, but the, the Banco de Palmas is, uh, uh, was towards the beginning of the start of this effort. You can sort of see what I started with by how close it is to the center. And when I was, was tracking off the uh, attendees at this panel discussion uh, that happened in 2014 that was led by Bernard Lietaire, who has since passed, but he was the architect of the Euro and a promoter of community currency. And you know, I think it's really important because many of the people in the digital currency space, you know, I've kind of gone head to head with them since the beginning of all the lockdowns because m there are many, many people 
who are operating in sort of alternative media or alternative health or all of these alternative spaces that have picked up blockchain, uh, imagining it as their liberation uh, tool. Uh, but because my entry point into the work was through education and realizing that they were working on digital identity to put um, the preschool children on blockchain for their social credit scores, um, I had a very different take always from the beginning around blockchain and digital currency because I knew that it was about managing people for social impact. Uh, so it was interesting to go back to 2014 and sort of see which, again, in blockchain slash Bitcoin years, uh, you know, eight years back is sort of a far distance in the past and see how things have evolved. And one of the, the panelists that participated, his name, he was kind of quiet. Uh, his name was Carlos de, de Freitas, uh, and he was a, a special advisor on advocacy and climate finance. And of course, that's really central to what's going on with the, the COP27 and sort of the new level of tokenization and financialization of nature, um, and then also human capital in relation to nature. So he gave his... Uh, his presentation, and it was on something called this uh, Banco Palmas. And the Banco Palmas, which is here in the middle, I guess here, let me push this over a little bit more so you can see the Banco Palmas is here. And it is sort of the centerpiece, what, what they're calling the solidarity economy. And, you know, as, as the, the crypto space continues to crumble, I think it's really important to understand that waiting in the wings on the left side as a counterpoint to the crypto libertarian side is this idea of uh, tokenized cooperative finance and that that's, that's what's gonna come next. Um, and so this Banco Palmas is, it, it, was, a, it was a local community bank. Again, the, the story goes that there were uh, fishermen in a village um, outside of uh, Fortaleza in the northeastern part of Brazil. It's a coastal town and there was a storm and I think there was damage to their property. And uh, in, in, from that storm, they relocated all the fishermen like inland to some sort of bleak outpost and um, where they didn't have very good prospects. And eventually the community got together and they decided to start a community uh, banking system. And uh, later on down the line, uh, this gentleman, Joachim de Melo Neto Segundo, who had been training as a priest but left the priesthood, showed up and helped them to sort of formalize uh, their community currency program. Now, I would say that this is really important for people to keep an eye on um, because, you know, I'm all of the banking stuff, all of the monetary stuff, it's that's where the rubber meets the road. And so many, many people who would identify more on the progressive end have been examining things like community banking systems, alternative banking systems for many, many years. And a lot of cities, you know, in the U.S. are now looking at um, community banking as, as an answer to the big treacherous banking systems. Um, my concern, because I've always been about the so concerns about social impact finance and the um, digital and cybernetic management of behavior against these behavioral dashboards and leaderboards, um, I've always been really concerned about the community banking structure. I mean, I won't say always, but since since I have learned more about community banking, because whenever I try to engage people in that space around my concerns about digital identity and the ethics or lack of ethics in the idea of investing in human capital improvements through community banking systems, 
people tend to like not know what I'm I'm talking about and they don't really respond and I'm like well until you can tell me for sure that my community bank isn't going to put preschoolers on blockchain um, I'm, I'm going to like keep you at a distance because I do, I'm not really buying if you're not sophisticated enough to understand that this is something we need to be concerned about then then maybe you haven't actually done all your homework and I feel like very much this is sort of the same thing with this uh, modern monetary theory the MMT stuff that's coming on it it looks progressive and yet if you know the whole backstory about social impact finance and cybernetics and behavioral conditioning, um, it, there are many, many wrinkles and many, many red flags. So anyway, so the, the, the story goes, you know, the poor fishermen and they're trying to get together and pool their resources so that they can better things for their families. Uh, the former priest shows up and decides to help them out. Um, he later, this is 1990, the late 1990s, by 2004, he's already been, uh, 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 awarded the designation of a change maker with Ashoka. And Ashoka is uh, sort of the central for the impact finance space. And you'll see underneath here, his name is Joachim Demelo Neto Segundo. And his uh, categories are uh, financial services and business and social enterprise. So, so, so you, you've got, you've got the church involved. Uh, incidentally, uh, you have uh, Global North Silicon Valley social enterprise involved. Uh, eventually, the people start to get to know this this uh, bank more. It becomes sort of a test bed. Uh, by 2008, they've oh they've won a Millennium Development Goal Award, right? And, and the de de the Millennium Goals predate the Sustainable Development Goals, so they won an award for that in 2008. And then um, eventually, by 2010, they had a whole spinoff, which is not super surprising, uh, where they were looking to uh, scale the the banking mechanism with uh, uh, digital systems. So they were moving into digital banking. And then uh, what we'll see later is that MIT has actually uh, been involved in this since the beginning. And so they're sort of the leaders in digital currency. So, um, you know, th there have been many, many papers written about Banco Palmas. It's sort of like the poster child for... Uh, a community baking system that serves low-income communities. Uh, it's not a surprise that it started to go digital. And a partner with that was the, um, and I, I'm not going to pronounce this probably correctly, but Caixa, Caixa, C-A-I-X-A, Economica Federal, uh, which was a, a Brazilian bank that was specifically serving low-income Brazilians, Caixa uh, Economica Federal. So they were the partner in essentially taking what was a community banking system um, for fishermen and scaling it all over the country uh, and, and making it, setting it up as digital. And so eventually by... Let's see. This is this is this is recent. This is a recent presentation. So last year, 2021, uh, they actually have a, a a solidarity banking network in Brazil with 48 associated digital community banks across 17 states in Brazil, and so this this program was being presented um, sort of as part of a. Uh, you know, a global presentation about sort of this as a use case that would be scalable because the challenge with these systems is always in bringing it to scale. Now, one of the, the pilot programs was this, with this was called uh, the Mumbuka 
uh, Ed Dinero, uh, and it came out of a digital currency lab. Now, this digital currency isn't actually on blockchain, evidently, but it is in it is digital money and it operates through an app and QR codes. And it's interesting because it actually is geofenced. So you can only use these currencies in a certain location. And then eventually they were scaled and they were run with early UBI pilots. And so it doesn't like the digital currency. <sighs> It's not all on blockchain. It's not necessarily all on decentralized ledgers. And um, I think there's going to be a lot of fluidity in terms of digital identity, digital currency. But the idea is to do economic modeling. And so I just want to take a minute because a lot of this is gamification and simulation because they're using money to do social simulations and prediction and risk modeling. And much of the money in the community banks, they're specifically targeting uh, poor communities. And the reason that I think that Brazil is really front and center here is that um, in the series that I did, and at the time when I was writing this in January, I was had been really thinking about the uh, development impact bonds that were targeting India and like the Indian farmers resistance situation. And the goal with social impact finance is to bring the quote unquote global south and then onboard them, leapfrog them into the digital economy so that they can tap into the intellectual power of that collective to build the metaverse and all of the smart contract web three layers and do the cyber defense. But then not only to get them to do that work, but to actually manage the youth of those countries as social impact commodities. So they get like verticals of both, um, you know, getting this, the um, work at the, that they want, getting the workforce they want, and then also getting benefits in managing those people as human capital and in doing so sort of conditioning them for metaverse life. Now, the trick with India is it's, it's quite large and its population is more diffuse. And certainly there are, a number of very, very large cities, but then there's also a lot of mid-sized cities. So it's scattered in then a lot of rural areas. Now, the situation with Brazil, my understanding is that the, the poverty is concentrated in the urban populations and those are very rich, you know, so to speak, in terms of the potential to easily access a lot of people as a human capital bond program, like whether it's for financial inclusion or for education services or, uh, you know, health metric data. Um, like I, the, the piece I wrote today was talking about the favelas as oil deposits, like mining people as a resource commodity as data. And so, in, the, in Brazil is much, if you were gonna sort of create a market um, in impact finance, like India is sort of a big mouthful. Like it's hard to get your arms around all of India. It's, it's complicated. And so they're definitely wading in Omidyar network and these things are both in Brazil and in India. Brazil feels a little bit more manageable. It's still a major global economy, but the resources that they want, the impact resources are more condensed. And then since for the past 20 years, the financial infrastructure has been gradually put in place to really focus on um, getting 
micro insurance, microfinance into these communities in various forms and, and starting with Banco Palmas, but then moving on into other forms of um, other, other kinds of digital currency systems and scaling that. And so I feel like at this point, now with Web3 getting ready to pop, and then also with COP27, with the emphasis on natural resource protection, because again, the rainforests and also like the coral reefs are really like rich in terms of intensity and biodiversity. So those are gonna be set up as natural resources and possibly even the human capital will be positioned against saving the natural resources so that they will be tasked with getting skills to manage the NF trees, you know, manage the, the smart contract layers that are gonna financialize and tokenize the natural assets of Brazil. And so it's this moment I feel like that's about to switch. And and with all of sort of the contention of the elections, and I think we're seeing this worldwide, that there's questions about the integrity of many electoral processes, and that's on purpose because we're in the process of being taken down, like the entire like belief in government elected government systems at a national level and a local level needs to be eliminated in favor of the smart contract. And that's the, the World Federation contract of you know, the Ethereum layer that is being installed, that, that there is going to be all of this unrest around elections so that we can look for accountability and transparency on the ledgers. And so within the social impact finance space, so Lula actually, he was the one who like previously had helped set up uh, Bolsa Familia. Now, if you've sort of heard me mention maybe in my past research about the conditional cash transfer programs um, in Mexico, that Mexico was a central pilot in the mid nineties to get um, payments for low income women and children regularized, it was not yet digital at that time, around compliant, beha demonstrated behavioral compliance around education, healthcare, and some job training. So that happened in Mexico, but then um, uh, uh, <laughs> it's, it's going, you know, all, all around as well. So now, so Bolsa Familia is in Brazil. Uh, and it was, it's a World Bank program, right? So same structural adjustment, the people who did structural adjustment to you last time are doing structural adjustment. Again, only they're actually really targeting uh, the youth. Now, so, so Lula, uh, he was the one that introduced Bolsa Familia, the conditional cash transfer to Brazil in 2003. Now, if he, he was also is, I, I think, closely aligned with uh, the Catholic Church. And my understanding is Pope Francis, you know, wrote him some letters while he was in prison. And um, and at this point, the Catholic Church, there's this dichotomy between the evangelical Protestant and Catholic and that the Catholic side in Brazil is more understood, branded around social justice and like helping the poor, helping black and brown people. And then the evangelical side is more white, a little more affluent and more moralizing and like more free. So Bolsonaro is the evangelical. Lula is the Catholic leaning, not specifically, but it sort of breaks that way. But I will say both sides are in on it. So, um, uh, so, okay, so both sides are working on the poverty management. Both Lula on is more aligned with the, the, the Catholic Church, and again, they've done a lot of the impact finance space. But then I will also say that uh, Shanzai City and IO2 Foundation, 
they used Boa Vista in, in Brazil as one of their pilots for early childhood finance. And you can see down here, we're proud to announce that Shanzai City will develop decentralized ledger technology for Boa Vista to facilitate uh, needs identification in early childhood planning. So this was in March of 2019. And then we have the image, we have uh, the first lady of Brazil at the time, Michelle Bolsonaro, who was there at that event as well. So you've kind of got, they've got everybody coming and going. And within this early education finance space, uh, this is from Shanzai City from their uh, program in China that they were working on uh, different kinds of interventions that were all tied to digital identity, both nutrition, medical, and schooling. So these are all data collection points that were going to be put on dashboards. And at least in China, and I think in Brazil, they were going into people's homes with iPads and tablets and taking photographs to document um, baseline standards and impact metrics. So even though it's, it's framed as solidarity, um, you know, there, there's a lot more going on. People are, don't understand the nature of these technologies and they're in the process of being normalized, right? Like for our own good. So I'll just go through, here's, here's this was yesterday uh, uh, at COP27, Brazil is back on the world stage, Lula tells the climate summit. And so, you know, he's sort of the, the star over there because he's the one who's fronting the natural asset classes with uh, the forests, the rainforests. Here's another one. Uh, COP27 greeted like a rock star, Brazil's Lula promises to protect the Amazon. And of course, that is all about the tokenization and the NF trees. Uh, that are coming. Uh, there is, uh, there's something that's coming on board now called merit tokens, uh, that they're working on tokenizing the forests. Again, uh, creating this idea of, I guess, like keep it in the ground, like for oil, but like keep the forests where they are, but create new revenue streams of allowing the forest to be there. Uh, but in doing so, what's coming along is this idea of um, surveillance, that you will have geospatial level surveillance um, through uh, tied to the impact markets. And so this is, we actually, we're going to talk about this, Leo, Jason, and I on um on Sunday, uh, but th this is a clip from Protocol Labs about funding the commons and uh, sustainable blockchain projects called uh, Gain Forest. And th so they're selling off pieces of like preserving the Amazon uh, tied to NFTs, which they call NF trees. So there's an image here. This young woman is talking about that there is geospatial and remote sensing drones and satellites that keep an eye on your corner of the forest in real time. And then they hope it doesn't burn down. <laughs> and uh, then here's another image with the drones and in real time looking at this little parcel of land that has been set aside on the blockchain. And then this last image here is actually of the drone surveillance of uh, people who are living in the vicinity of the rainforest. And so what we're talking about is legitimizing sort of ongoing surveillance of everything that's happening under the earth in the name of, of preserving the climate. And, and again, I would say most people who, who are on board with the idea that we have to remedy the harms to nature are not thinking in advance that it looks like tokenized trees and um, and drone surveillance. That's not how they're imagining it at all. So, uh, okay, so again, we're going back, just back to Banco Palmas. Uh, they've been working on a UBI program, uh, and that's, let me see, uh, 
the, the Renda Basica de Cittadania. Uh, so that working on getting that up to speed uh, with, the, with the banking system. Uh, and Marika, which is this, the seaside town near Rio, that was the, the, the model area for the UBI program. And again, the lockdowns uh, really moved that forward, uh, allowed many more people, like put many more people in a position of needing that level of support. Uh, let me see, what else have we got? I think that covers a lot of this at the time. So MIT, their collab was, had been working, uh, doing a participatory action project uh, with the Palmas Lab. And again, you know, MIT, that's the war machine. <laughs> they, this was from 2018 and it says, research from the periphery building community capacity at Instituto Banco Palmas. So understanding that MIT is the center for in the digital currency space and that they were working really closely with this project. Uh, and then they actually, MIT has its own center in Brazil, uh, which, it, which is interesting. And it, it sort of plays into the amount of social impact finance that is happening in, in that country um, that I go into in more detail in my series about impact finance. But yeah, so MIT has a close, close tie and they had actually been working in the favelas doing all sorts of data documentation across like 4D. And so they're talking about, this is a paper that actually just came out in April of 2021. Uh, the title is Favelas 4D, Scalable Methods for Morphology Analysis of Informal Settlements Using Terrestrial Laser Scanning Data. So essentially what they're saying is that like they want everything documented. And so, and, and you can imagine that what we're dealing with this sort of complexity theory, the game theory, complexity theory, trying to organize quote unquote chaos into some sort of order in some sort of big A data AI method. And, and probably in the, the sense of urban planning that these favelas are among the really interesting use cases for them because they're built on the outside, on the margins of society, not according to all of the established rules. And so MIT was going into these spaces and actually with lasers measuring out um, the, the doing, they're, they're not exactly wireframes for people who might be listening in and not seeing it. It's actually like pixels, uh, blue pixels for horizontal surfaces, red pixels for vertical surfaces. and they're scanning it all and then walking through. So you can create models that you actually can, can walk through in real time. And then you can examine it in different elevations. Like you can look at it from the top down or the bottom up. And um, it's, it's pretty striking. I'm gonna see if, what, what is it said? This is the description from their website. It says Near, nearly a billion people live in informal settlements. Uh, in Brazil, they're known as favelas and they're characterized by dense and complex urban environments. So you can imagine how these complexity theorists are all about this, right? Dense, complex. They wanna know how it all works. Using 3D laser scanning technology, the Sensible City Lab, in collaboration with BR Tech 3D, is conducting a comprehensive morpho metric analysis of Roxina, the largest favela in the, uh, Rio de Janeiro, home to about 100,000 people. A scientific analysis quantitatively captures the ingenious construction practices and dire infrastructural needs of the favela, realizing the urban logic of Rocina with unprecedented precision. 
Favela's RD illuminates Rosina's shape and organization in a new and comprehensive way, representing an impactful step towards the inclusion of the informal city in our global and digital urban future. So everything must be included, right? Nothing left behind, uh, even down into the, the nooks and crannies. And, you know, the challenge is, is that many people are excited for this. They're, they're imagining that this is, a, this is a way of identifying. In fact, that's like through identity politics, that's how they manipulate people, that they are framing it as like you want to be seen, you want to be recognized, you want to be, um, you know, part of this system, right? And 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 you you'd like to be on Google Maps. We don't want to leave you out. Like no, nothing gets left behind. So um, I've just opened the the website here, and I'm just sort of looking around so people can see how it. Um, imagine you can look up and down. I guess those are maybe trees. Uh, you can sort of. I think you can even maybe walk through this. I'm not sure. Oh, you can zoom out and you can see it from a distance. You can measure it. And so what I'm saying is like, if you understand that what part of this purpose is a simulation model, um, and this is the kind of stuff that they put in video games and that they model video games around, that um, you know, it's, it's a little intense to think that they're actually building these worlds, like virtual worlds, in some of the most remote places that are the least measurable, that that, that, is, that is their intention. Now, uh, and it's sensible, right? So that's smart city. So if you can take the smart city concept to, um, uh, to, to uh, you know, the metaverse, you know, if you, you can apply it across the board into these remote areas, I think that's really important to remember. And now I'm going to play this little clip here. This is actually a, a preview from a video game that is set in the favelas. And so I think you can see if you're, if you're able to watch uh, the similarities between the MIT Sensible City model and the video game itself. So there's like aerials, there's all sorts of wires, there's interiors, um, living rooms, kitchens, construction areas. It zooms up, it has all the satellite dishes, um, game boards, and then the mountain with the, the Christ figure at the top and the, um, it's called Skull Rain, I think. And so that's these games, they're already setting these games. And so when I'm talking a little bit about the game theory it's because I really think that it start, it's going to start to be difficult to tell what's a game, what's real, and what's in the game. And, you know, just to go back to the, the presentation I did a couple days ago about can we play the game, right? Like, this is the Santa Fe Institute. This is their poker game, right? These are the guys who are doing the complexity theory modeling. And they're linking not only the financial markets, but to evolution, like biological functioning. Um, and one of the things I, I mentioned uh, in the talk today with Jason and Leo was it was brought to my attention in, in the neuroeconomics zone up here. Uh, one of the pioneers in neuroeconomics, uh, his, one of his heroes, his name was E.O. Wilson. And E.O. Wilson was a sociobiologist and uh, you know, somewhat controversial. His focus, his study area was ants and again, social insects, which is, I think, when we're talking about solidarity and collective action, I think if you're on the conservative side, you might imagine that this is about um, 
uh, like, oh no, it's the socialists or the communists. And what I'm saying is like, no, no, it's like the ants or the termites or the wasps. The, the kind of collectivity that they're talking about is in complexity theory and modeling. Not, it's not necessarily um, an established ideology, like political ideology at present. So E.O. Wilson, who again was a hero for uh, Paul Glimpscher, uh, a pioneer in neuroeconomics. In 2010, he was doing a, uh, a, a some research with a, uh, a mathematician and a biologist at Harvard named by the name of Martin Nowak. And Martin Nowak was sort of, I, ca I came to know his name because he was uh, promoted by uh, John Clippinger with MIT, uh, who is another member of this descent group. And so he's like, you really need to look at Martin Nowak, what he's doing and what he was doing with E.O. Wilson and sociobiology, because what they were theorizing in 2010 was that there's actually evolutionary, uh, uh, there's, there's a benefit to cooperation, even though we, we talk about tooth and claw and, you know, uh, the survival of the fittest and all of this in in the markets. Uh, in reality, we should be reshaping our markets to be more cooperative. And they framed this around youth sociality and wasps. I think they were looking in, and part of this youth sociality was related to the fact that that you should hand over your reproductive capability to the collective and not necessarily expect to have your own progeny, but then collectively raise the next generation, even if they weren't birthed from your own body, like wasps, you know, that there's a queen who takes care of the reproduction stuff and everyone else just um, manages along. Um, but the interesting thing about that was this use sociality and the cooperation, which I think is going to replace, again, the libertarian free market selfishness that's it's meant to swing back in that direction, was that that work was funded not only by the National Science Foundation, and uh, the Templeton Foundation, this is here at the bottom, uh, and the Templeton Foundation I've talked about repeatedly about their investments in high uh, theoretical physics and religion and free markets, was that they were also supported this study by the Gates Foundation, as well as Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> so, and this is all gamification, like Martin Nowak, if you actually, if you look at his Google Scholar page, and it goes on for hundreds and hundreds of papers, but they're, they're talking about the evolution of reciprocity, but they're also talking about um, uh, evolutionary games and spatial chaos, uh, rules for the evolution of cooperation, uh, but also looking at uh, cooperation relating to viruses in immune systems and social networks. So everything from disease to social construction, later on it goes into language to, um, evolution, right? And how we relate to the environment, everything can be gamed. And I think that's like really vital that we understand that when we imagine being in a gaming environment, that the tokens, the tokens of the game are really central to the game. And, um, you know, when I was talking before a little bit about Bancor, the Bancor protocol, uh, that this will be a clearinghouse for many tokens. And, and one of the things John Clippinger had been talking about uh, was the need for many tokens to create different levels of signaling in the system. So the, there is meaning in the tokens used and how they move. And so when Michael Zargam of, of Block Science and his peers uh, at the University of Vienna start doing um, papers called Complex Systems Modeling of Community Inclusion, they're looking at the physics of money and what the physics of money say about our society. Um, so uh, this is, you know, 
this is important knowledge that it's gamification towards an evolutionary process in which money is a central, central feature. Uh, okay, so so yes, yeah, so we're just, anyway, we're back down to Banco Palmas. Uh, we've got the gaming part. We realize that both sides are in on it in terms of Lula from the social progressive part, Bolsonaro from the managing the children part. We've got the natural capital factored in with the tokenization of nature and Lula being the hero at COP27. Um, actually, Banco Palmas was, there was a presentation on it at this uh, Moral Economies uh, econo uh, gathering in 2016 at Berkeley called Moral Economies and Economic Moralities. Let me see. Uh, uh, yeah, so this was, it was uh, part of re-embedding the social new modes of production and critical consumption and alternative lifestyles. Um, and this was a part, there was one of the participants was from the, the Banco Palmas uh, in Fortaleza uh, program. So again, moral economy, we're going back to Oliver Goodenough. We, we need to be moral about it. And this was part of the Society for the Advancement of Socioeconomics. And oh, look, look, the next conference is in, in Rio in 2023. And look, it, it links back to Amitai Etzioni. So there are some folks that are, you know, really, I know there's a whole crew of people who are like the anti-communitarian. So like this will maybe jazz you up that, you know, part of this socioeconomics goes over back to the communitarian Amitai Etzioni, although I would argue not exclusively. So that part is in the mix. And so Leotair, Bernard Leotair, the architect of the euro, at one point he compared the Palmas currency to something called the Weir, Weir W-I-R, uh, bank in Switzerland. There were a, num a number of these experiments in different kinds of currency in the 1930s, uh, and, and the Weir Bank was one of them. And so let's see, I'm just going to read this is out of a, a blog post. It's talking about um, the Banco Palmas is similar to Weir Bank from Switzerland, which was created in 1934. Um, and I guess it still exists. It says this. Uh, Let's see, Banco Palmas is similar to Weir Bank from Switzerland, created in 1934, and it is more advanced than Grameen Bank of Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohamed Yunus, uh, Yunus because it provides the poor with better help to get out of poverty. The interest rates are lower. This statement comes from Bernard Lietaire, former director of the Central Bank of Belgium and an expert on complementary currencies, from frequent flyer miles to social currencies. Just as it is with the Palmas currency, Weir Bank makes transactions with the Weir currency as well as Swiss francs. Of course, the scale is much higher since they involve 65,000 businesses and the value of operations is $2 billion a year. Um, so again, he's equating these complementary currencies uh, that, that have this long history with what is coming out of Banco Palmas. And then there's another model from 1931 called Jack, J-A-K, which is a Swedish bank. Um, so this was an alternative bank, a cooperative bank in Sweden in the 1930s. That was another experiment. And then there was another one in Austria, also in 1931, called the Wargel experiment. And I think that's something that a lot of these uh, people who are interested in social physics and economic physics look to is this idea of 
the velocity, the velocity of currency and how quickly it moves through the local economy. And that's why, again, you're, you're working with high energy physics is, is people are looking at um, velocity or demurrage, uh, how, the, the how the currency is circulated. Uh, and that came out of uh, some, a gentleman named Silvio Gesell, who was uh, the Bavarian Soviet Republic, I think, and uh, a Georgist. And he identified as uh, a free market anti-capitalist. Uh, and let me just pull him up. So this was part of this demiurge, which people who I'm sure there are many people who are way more schooled than I am in complementary currency and community currency. But um, again, for the most part, I don't think that they're imagining it in terms of economic simulation modeling for gamification of the world into uh, a metamorphic stage of some sort of human plus uh, process. Uh, and just in finishing up, so so this is one thing I wanted to mention. Early on, this community banking was about uplifting people out of poverty, which in and of itself is, you know, not a bad plan. Surely people, they want to have meaningful work. They want to have stable jobs. They want to be able to have autonomy and making decisions about supporting your family. Um, and, and so building in sort of social welfare into the banking system was always part of it. Now, it's interesting to note that early on, the, the Banco Palma started with something called a local production and consumption map. And so, uh, and so it really was an early planned economy um, in, this, in this way, that they, it was a small community and they were assessing what their resources were and what they wanted to do with them which again, in and of itself isn't a problem at that scale, but then once you bring it over to an entire country and you introduce global hedge funds, it starts to become problematic. Um, the, the, the mapping work that was being done was actually carried out by youth. So it became a youth workforce training program. And then uh, the bank was also supporting uh, programs around uh, empowering women, ad addressing issues of addiction, uh, and cooperative education. And so these were all efforts that were, were, were put in together. But you can imagine how what a planned economy starts look, looking like once you put it into digital currency and start governing the society cybernetically. Now, Banco Palmas is also, they have a partnership with something called Our Bank uh, that is a microcredit platform. And then the trick with all of these uh, alternative currency services and even with traditional currencies is the unbanked, right? All of this is about getting um, the unbanked into the digital sphere. They keep talking about like leapfrogging. And that was the thing with Mexico is like, how do you, people are used to having an informal economy. They don't trust the banks. They don't like keeping information, like things in the banks. The banks are distant. They're, they're maybe not available in remote areas. If you have digital currency, they're not connected. And so that's all of the pieces that are being moved together, like the parts to try to figure this out. So there's something called, I guess, uh, Oh, oh, the banking correspondent model, uh, which is 
essentially it's just saying that there are other businesses that are non-banks that carry out basic banking services. So like the local store and you can, it's, I think this is really common like in, in Africa with the M-Pesa is that you can pay a fee, become part of the system and offer basic banking to small rural communities. So this is one of the things Banco Palmos was working on was the banking correspondent model to bring it into, uh, into view. But then they were also working on the digital piece, which was through something called Mahiti Infotech, which was a cloud-based software system based out of India. So they were doing the cloud-based uh, systems to support uh, micro-banking is what they were calling it, like because FinClusion is one of these sustainable development goals. And so, but it's interesting, right? Like all of the global south are being pulled in together. Um, and so, yeah, so Mahidi is part of that. And uh, and part of it, so this is the thing. So in addition to uh, MIT being doing this, their participatory research, uh, Columbia University was doing it as well. So in 2011 and 2012, oops, Sorry, they were um, they did a workshop around Banco Palmas. Now, remember, Columbia University was initially a lot of the physicists behind the Manhattan Project and early biophysics came out of Columbia. It was also their industrial engineering school was sort of the birthplace of the technocracy movement. It was also the home of like, quote unquote, progressive education. So there's a lot of cybernetic systems embedded in Columbia already. So so they were working on. Um, uh, working on like doing an evaluation of the monitoring system for this bank. And then in, uh, th there was something about the social indicators. Yeah. So one of the things they were studying was how the cloud-based platform uh, monitored social indicators. Let me see if this will open up. Yeah. Okay, so this is from page two of the paper. It says, uh, Instituto Palmas is working to adapt the open source management information system. And remember, all of this stuff is always open source. That's because it's going to be a digital public good because everything has to be integrated. Um, so they're working to adapt the information management system called Our Bank, developed by Mahidi Infotech in Bangalore, India. Given that it works offline, online, or via cell phone, it should provide a flexible platform for automated transactions and real-time monitoring um, of the range of services provided by the community development banks. Most importantly, our bank has been designed to be used by people with little schooling. At the same time, it will also allow Instituto Palmas and its community development banks to monitor not only their financial operations, but also a range of social indicators to better track the impact of the development banks in the communities they serve. And so when I see social indicators, I imagine social impact metrics, right? And then eventually this being connected like with Volsa Familia and with conditions like tied to the, the receipt of those payments. Um, additionally, yeah, so microinsurance, microcredit are, are part of it. Again, Grameen has been very predatory in that regard. And, and Leo's talked a lot about uh, the, agri the farmer's insurance being a central part of what's coming with Web3 is agricultural insurance, weather cro and crop insurance, and that he said that often actually this insurance is packaged in with acquisition of seed and that it comes with like seed and fertilizer and pesticide and insurance all in one bundle. And so I, I can see a day where maybe your um, 
payment system comes with some stipend or some voucher to access the, the seeds. Um, okay, so, all right, so I think that covers most of that. And then I have, so I have, uh, so it goes out. So Fortaleza, the, the neighborhood, uh, Conjunto Palmeiras neighborhood was where this all got started with the help of Joaquim de Mello Neto Segundo, the former priest turned Silicon Valley change maker. And it's, it's quite interesting. So they're part of a, um, and I, I will say they always pick the thing that it's hard to imagine that it's a problem, right? So they'll pick a smart, they don't pick the most repressive smart city surveillance system. They'll pick something like, how can you be against like vision zero? Like, do you want pedestrians to be hit by cars and killed? Like they'll pick something that's like the low hanging fruit. So uh, they started out with a smart city transit program in 2015. Uh, it was initiated by the, the mayor at the time, who I think left office in 2021. His name was Roberto Claudio Rodriguez Bizarra. And it's quite interesting. So uh, Mr. Bizarra has a PhD in public health from the University of Arizona. <laughs> and he was uh, affiliated with the Brazilian Socialist Party. Uh, so he's got, again, a public health degree from from a US school, like not only any US school, but the University of Arizona. And incidentally, his father, Roberto Claudio Fronta Bizarra, was an agronomist and a statistician who was also educated at the University of Arizona. So they have a family tie to Arizona through the education system. Now this smart city transit project was underwritten by Bloomberg Philanthropies, and uh, it was a partnership for health. And again, these partnerships for health are always about sort of data surveillance for uh, benefits, right? Like, oh, look, give all the kids an apple. Look, they still have the sticker on the apple. They haven't like washed the apples or just giving it to the kids for the photo op. So they have a partnership for healthy cities and they're, they're gonna be using the cost of managing diabetes and asthma and um, obesity against all of this. Now, at the same time, they're introducing many, many toxins and, and dirty power and EMF frequencies that are gonna cause chronic illness. But they're saying that like you need to manage your own personal behavior so that you can um, keep yourself fit for the collective. And, and that's what Bloomberg is about. Now, uh, let's see. Yeah, so they got an award uh, for the international youth, like safe travels to school, right? Nobody's going to be against the children travel safely to school project. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, that's how it works. No one's going to say like, oh, this is a terrible idea. Like we, sh we want children to, you know, be hit by trucks on their way to school. But it's all a, ma a matter of like, for me, I imagine that Vision Zero under the guise of keeping people safe at intersections will be able to install uh, cameras with artificial vision all over the cities, like throughout the cities. Now, uh, Fortaleza in 2012 uh, joined uh, ICLEI, which for people who are familiar with sort of the Agenda 21, uh, ICLEI is really front and center in terms of the, the membership organizations uh, for sort of smart cities and the sustainable development goals. Um, so Fortaleza is part of that. And in actually Arizona University, their business school is working on the data analytics for the Safe Travels to School project. And, you know, this is just, um, you know, University of Arizona, it's actually in, in Tucson, and I'm going to be going to Tucson next week and looking into some like consciousness stuff and space stuff and collective impact stuff. But um, yeah, so, so it, in the cloud world, nothing is far away. Uh, these partnerships and collaborations can happen very easily. Uh, and 
Sort of just finishing on this side, uh, the former mayor of Fortaleza, who sort of you know got things moving along or you know helped keep things bubbling up, uh, he was on the advisory board of something called the WRI Ross Center for Sustainable Cities. Uh, WRI being World Resources Institute. And uh, this is actually kind of important uh, because I'm gonna be talking with my friend Brandy, I think on Sunday, and we'll have that out maybe sometime next week. Uh, but we're gonna be talking about Florida and real estate development. And Stephen Ross, who is the backer of the Sustainable Cities Project, is a major, major player in global real estate, but particularly in New York. He, <coughs> um, he was behind the Hudson Yards project. Uh, so they're working globally and they're looking to remake cities as smart cities. So that's part of what I'm gonna be talking about in the blog post. And he made a lot of his money early on in the 80s in uh, low-income housing in Miami. Uh, now he, they're, they're involved in something called microhomes. Oh, shoot. Um, again, I mentioned that he was doing Hudson Yards. He was part of that development, which includes uh, many people who are pursuing uh, social impact finance and smart city technology, including Sidewalk Google, Sidewalk Labs. Uh, so uh, Stephen Ross is pretty important when it comes to us. But you know, do you think does does Hudson Yards look particularly sustainable? Like you can you can throw some sedum and some you know lead certification on those tall buildings, but I they certainly don't look degrowth to me at all. Um, all right. So and then I guess just in finishing up uh, on the smart city track. So we you know we got into all of this from Mr. Freitas, who um, is the coordinator. Again, he's the European coordinator for Palmas Currency. Now, why is there a European coordinator for a, 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 like a, a series of community development banks in Brazil? Now, I haven't found this, and if anyone can help me find, find this out, I would be really interested. But evidently, it was French money that helped scale Banco Palmas. And it, I've never been able to actually find whose money was behind it. But if you can find out what was the backing, the French backing behind Banco Palmas, I think that's an interesting intersection because it wasn't Portuguese. I mean, it wasn't Sp Spain. It was France. So uh, Mr. Freitas is, uh, he's the, the coordinator for it in, in Paris. He's part of something called FMDC or Funding for Cities of Sustainability. Uh, and that actually was formed in part by the United Cities and Local Governments uh, Organization, uh, which actually dates, and, and they were the ones, this United Cities and Local Governments group, they were the ones who got Goal 11, which is sustainable cities into Agenda 2030. So they were the lobbyists to get that put in place. But their history goes back actually to 1913 and the some sort of like World Fair in Ghent, Belgium. So, you know, the, the smart cities goes back a ways. And um, at that World Fair, you know, so much of what we're talking about is about like electricity, right? Biophotonics, optics, power transmission, circuits. And uh, this, this Expo of Ghent in 1913, it was um, like really a centerpiece for the electric lighting. They had a palace of light. So um, that might be co somewhat coincidental, but it feels also somewhat related in, in the smart city context. Uh, all right. So, yeah, so I think... So that, that covers most of that. At the end of the day, I'm just gonna go up. I have a few other things. These are, these are mostly drawn from the series that I, I wrote about Brazil. Uh, 
you know, the, the World Bank was closely involved in the conditional cash transfer program in Bolsa Familia. Uh, they're now looking to engage the youth of the favelas in building out blockchain. And so they're, they're doing uh, youth education in, in the blockchain space and in the gaming space. Uh, Brazil was also part of a blockchain education record pilot. And so, you know, that's coming online too. And again, in the future, you're not going to have your four-year degree or your associate's degree. You're going to have a continuing series of uh, stackable micro-credentials. So that's what your educational record will be that you continue to acquire badges and skill skills badges and credentials. Um, and so that... It's interesting, you know, it's an indicator to me that they're already piloting that. They have a technical paper for how that's going to go about. Um, you know, a lot of this, I keep saying, is like grounded in eugenics. And the Kellogg Foundation in the United States is a key player in the um, universal basic income space or, you know, in these guaranteed income payment spaces. And there are often targeting low-income communities and black communities. Out of curiosity, I just put in like grants to Brazil uh, into the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, and there were 541 grants <laughs> to Brazil on racial equity. So th there's a certain amount of irony. So W.K. Kellogg uh, was Will Keith Kellogg. Uh, he was the younger brother of John Harvey Kellogg. Now, John Harvey Kellogg was the guy, this is Kellogg's cornflakes. Uh, they were raised and practiced Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, they created a sanitarium and a lot of sort of alternative health treatments that involved vegetarianism and bowel cleansing and were really like early leaders in the good health promotion space, soy-based food. Um, but John Harvey Kellogg, who was the, 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 the heavy in, in the family, um, was just a straight up eugenicist. And very much he was a funder of the eugenics records office, uh, a, a participant with the Race Betterment Foundation and the Fitter Families Campaign. And I get the, the story that's told is sort of that Will Keith, it, like his brother, was quieter and maybe, maybe he wasn't so much of the eugenicist. But they spent most of their career together until they had a falling out, I think, over the cornflakes stuff. Um, and, but like, I don't think that you can consider the Kellogg legacy outside of eugenics element. So um, understanding that the universal basic income payment systems, if it's a eugenics, a, an extension of the eugenics program, then essentially what they're working on is this use sociality, right? The so, so solidarity economy where you sacrifice your reproductive interests in favor of a collective where the optimization metrics are dematerialization of the human body, like is moving into this avatar photonic existence of a collective hive mind consciousness. And, you know, I can't say that, you know, these people went back, you know, went back this far that they were imagining, but, you know, at least, you know, as far as Huxley, Julian Huxley in the 40s, they were imagining that that was the, the, the noosphere, the Christogenesis was, was the game plan. So again, this is just a, um, you know, a discussion about like that, that John Harvey was definitely the solid eugenicist and, and maybe he was mean to his younger brother who went along, but they did like the, the legacy of Kellogg's is, is eugenics. And then, um, lastly, I'll sort of just scroll through this. These are the, the, the my series, uh, that I did on Brazil that I think is really, really relevant, especially if you consider, um, 
that the handoff from Bolsonaro to Lula, the involvement of the church in what's coming, uh, the, the involvement of many institutions of higher education in the US, including Stanford, including Columbia, in restructuring the education system and standardizing it in Brazil for, to, to pave the way for human capital finance. Um, the World Bank here, uh, the role of faith-based data colonialism, uh, the policy structures behind impact finance. My whole thing of getting into the space was actually initially based on some tweets by Glenn Greenwald sort of backing up Dorsey and saying, well, what harm could there be in like doing, paying for some after-school programs for kids in the favelas? Like there, there's no problem that could never be any problem with that. And I'm like, well, Glenn, actually like, like there's huge problems. So I, I laid that out and then I, I made some connections between after school rec center programs with tied to social impact finance dashboards in Philadelphia and, and how that would relate to, to Brazil, including uh, conditioning children for um, wristband wearable technology and drone surveillance, which is just like, it's beyond me what we can get to normalize. But, um, and then the, the gaming and then the use of the identity politics in the space to say like, you wanna be identified as someone of the favelas. You want to be identified as a person of color. You want to be identified in the game as players with these certain attributes. But in doing so, essentially what is happening is that all of these digital resources as social impact data commodities are being identified and prepared for the next game. So. Yeah, social impact finance is a real thing. So uh, if anybody, yeah, th these city coins are coming. Again, digital public goods, I really encourage people, I'm gonna send out, if you're not on my um, email list, definitely check in our channel on Sunday evening because we're gonna be talking about digital public goods. And oh my gosh. Well, it's interesting like how these, the Fortaleza like, or the, the Banco Palmas, like it's probably better known in impact finance circles in the global north than it is where it's actually happening. Because if you're not actually impacted by it, you wouldn't know. And, and, and sometimes it's hard to know if something is actually a real thing in the internet. Like if it looks like a real thing in the internet, it may not be such a real thing in the real world. And so that does give me some hope that maybe some of the things that they're planning won't actually happen. Um, so digital public goods are essentially... Um, Essentially, the story that they're going to try to tell is that like we can all have lots of things in the metaverse because they don't take up space or take up resources and that things that allow us to build out Web3 are by their very nature digital public goods and as such should be financed as impact opportunities that all benefit society. And the challenge with a digital public good is that Ultimately, it is about building out Web3. And then there are we're not allowed to have the conversation that maybe that isn't something that we consider a good outcome. It's just, it's, it's a preordained outcome that that's the, um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, if at some point they could say a digital public good is that everyone should have through uh, our healthcare program, access to an affordable uh, brain computer interface, and that's a digital public good. Um, every child should have access to a Chromebook so they can be data mined in their school. That's a digital public good. Everyone should have a wearable watch so they can be mined for their health data. That's a digital public good. And so all of these things that, that are becoming the surveillance architecture are being sold as digital public goods. And the lead on that is actually Norway. I have a friend who's Norwegian and I was like, 
asking her to like dig a little bit into the the Norway part because again um Grow Harlem Brundtland is was a you know the Brazil well again you know the whole sustainable development goals the whole Rio summit right Rio I mean it came out of something on purpose um so I I, I feel like the the richness of both the creativity um so much of which is actually, interestingly, I feel like is based in a sacred practice, is based in a faith practice that is being channeled into institutions that are going to use that infrastructure to hijack everything and pull it into the social impact space. Um, but the, like the, the richness of the biodiversity, of the spiritual diversity, of this you know, spirited people of like creative people who are navigating poverty, which is, I, I keep saying, like the AI wants to know how low-income people navigate the world because they have to have a lot of creative creativity and resourcefulness and stamina to do it over and over and over again. So, um, you know, leapfrogging all of these people into the digital public good space, into these open standards, metaverse, um, is the next phase. And like, I'll just say it, this will be my, you know, PSA for this moment is that if half of your intellectual free time is not being spent on understanding Web3 and its ramifications, including things like, uh, you know, open source and digital public goods and, uh, you know, identity layers, then we're not doing it right. So, all right. All right, so now, so okay, so now just just a, rem a reminder if you're tuning in late, this is a blog post that was part of a series I did in January. And for some reason, I didn't put the last installment up. And so over the last few days, as I've been looking into game theory and social prescribing and uh, virtualization of gaming environments, um, I looked back at this and I thought, wow, well, I need to talk about this Banco Palmas and wow, that's right, I did leave this last old blog post down. So let me put it up today. So it's, it's. I don't know that it's necessarily out of date. Maybe it's just syncing up to the new reality of what is happening in Brazil and it's, it's. I'm posting at exactly the right time. But if any of it seems a bit dated or the links are dead, it's because I actually wrote it in January. And then I do have, I'll, I'll, I'll put the link to this blog post in the, in the video. Um, but I, I have the links to the rest of the series if you haven't read it and are interested in, in learning more. Okay, so here goes. Uh, Brazil's first national smart city initiative, Cidades, uh, uh, pardon me, because my I don't speak Portuguese, uh, Digite, began in 2012. It was replaced in 2019 by Nacional de Estrategia para Cidades Inteligente Sustentáveis. <laughs> okay, advancing adoption of facial recognition infrastructure, connected agriculture, urban mobility, and electronic health records. The 2014 FIFA World Cup provided officials in Rio de Janeiro the excuse they needed to ramp up deployment of smart technologies. That effort was that effort um, was expanded with the 2016 Olympic Games. As preparations were underway for Rio's World Cup, the Rockefeller Foundation was launching its 100 Resilient Cities program. Rockefeller officials selected UK-based consultancy Arup A R U P to create create a design book for cities of the future. The firm consulted on several Olympic facilities in Rio. It is deeply embedded in UN Sustainable Development Goal planning efforts, as well as being a collaborator with ICLEI. That project resulted in a paper, a framework for cities that where inclusive integrated data would be captured 
to, reform, to inform response for future crises. Arup established a per permanent offices in Rio and Sao Paulo in 2012, knowing there would be a lot of work coming through the pipeline. One of Arup's projects was a, quote, child-centered resiliency report for the favelas, favelas of Salvador, funded by the Bernard Van Leer Foundation, a philanthropy backed, backing the creation of early childhood impact investing markets in Brazil. It was one part of Salvador's larger 200-plus page resiliency plan that identified the following pillars, cultural identity, which I say is social engineering, healthy communities, which I call biosurveillance, <laughs> inclusive economy, which I call digital ID and fintech, innovative government, which is data-driven public-private partnerships, and urban transformation, which is the sustainable panopticon. And then I have an image of the cover of this report that has um, a black mother and a young girl and they're holding a flower and they're pointing at the water. So, so there we've got that. And they're all, all dressed in white. Resilient Salvador, uh, part of the 100 Resilient Cities program of the Rockefeller Foundation. Once you understand that engineering poor communities is central to the social impact AI machine learning enterprise, you can see why venture philanthropists are so interested in Brazil's favelas. This moment has been a long time in coming as NGOs with international ties, like Teresa Williamson's Catalytic Communities, have harnessed grassroots organizing and groomed community leaders for their moment to shine as quality human capital on data dashboards set up by B-Labs social entrepreneurs and the University of Pennsylvania, the alma mater of both Dr. Williamson and Judith Rodin. Williamson, originally from the UK, has been working in Rio de Janeiro for two decades, bringing her Ivy League credentials and connections to implement a community solutions database, embed digital organizing, rebrand slums as culturally rich favelas, setting up future markets in creative capital, and install an asset-based community development framework. And that is a Northwestern University developed model that will prop up sustainable finance projections. Capturing the arts and creative thought within the container of social impact finance is a priority for those in power. Lest truly imaginative and revolutionary, revolutionary ideas take hold and break through the veneer of cybernetic control. Program officers have traveled the world proselytizing that the arts must be exploited to maximize their measurable economic contributions. A project financed by the British Council in 2017 laid out a framework for the creative economy in Brazil. The emphasis is always on inclusiveness, to pull those on the margins, including youth and women, into the vortex of social entrepreneurship. Know what we know about, knowing what we know about the rise of digital economics, NFTs, and the imperative to design the metaverse, it goes without saying that the impact investors will seek to digitize all forms of creative expression to make it profitable from an impact standpoint and legible from machine learning. A 2021 paper, The Favela as a Place for Development of Smart Cities in Brazil, Local Needs and New Business Strategies, states the following, and this is a quote. Seen by many in a simplistic way, summed up to be geographic spaces of drug circulation dominated by trafficking, Brazilian favelas have been consolidating themselves as storehouses of innovative minds, a creative territory with multiple and complex structures. 
these places today can produce a positive image with potential for market exploitation. Therefore, the objective was to draw a relationship between the creative economy, branding, and favelas, considering the concept of smart cities that include products and services from the slums. <sighs> okay, in the above paragraph, favela residents are seen as resources to be exploited. The challenge for policymakers devising a robust policy structure that sounds equitable, whereby these people's lives can be remade as commodities that can be integrated into digital knowledge, learning, creative, and ecotourist economic transactions. The built environment in which they live is a maze that makes their resources difficult to access, and thus numerous mapping and demographic projects are underway by academic institutions working to make the social relations and geography of the favelas more readily understood by outsiders. In the country's rich tradition of marinage, where enslaved people escaped their captors for distant outposts in the jungles or swamps, the favelas had long been, as Greenwald notes, beyond the reach or interest of the state. Okay, so that's, then I have an image of the, the Smart Cities paper. Um, you know, and again, the, 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 the different sections of the article uh, include the logic of the creative economy. And again, deontic logic is the smart contract layer. Uh, the concept of branding, vision, and concepts of smart, sustainable, humane, inclusive cities, and then final considerations. That, however, is changing as drones, apps, geospatial mapping, and laser scanning pushed under cover of digital equity and inclusion have begun to chart the terrain of the favelas with granular detail. Residents' existence is about to fundamentally change. They will be included. The question is included in what? In the coming era of stakeholder capitalism and circular economies, a person's use of privatized welfare or inputs will be evaluated against their economic productivity and good citizenship status, outputs, according to an ever-changing, to ever-changing rules of a game that is set by corporate government. With prenatal monitoring and blockchain electronic health records and birth certificates, it is possible this would start before birth. Add to that geospatial atlases augmented with socio-historical data, such as that being collected uh, for ImageRio by Houston-based and biotech uh, uh, research hub Rice University, the possibilities for factoring intergenerational trauma into predictive profiling for human capital bets are jaw-dropping. Rice University has numerous partnerships, including the University of Sao Paulo and the Army's Institute of Military Engineering, cultivated through Brazil at Rice and the Houston Embassy. Now, this is one that I forgot to include, so let me just see if I can find here. Um, so you can see this mapping system. So they've got the geolocation layers mapped out, and they're starting with the history um, in, in like 1500 and then moving forward. Um, and so you can go into any part of the area that was, was mapped and then zoom out to all of the layers of the history, which is fascinating. Like I kind of, you know, I do these maps and I like, I like the mapping elements, but uh, you can see how, you know, you can pivot it, you can zoom in at different layers. Uh, let me see, like in it, and it shows you that you can zoom in and like it's going through the timing. Yeah, they're like they go through the different time periods and then they can zoom in on all of the different elements. And 
what I'm imagining is like a future where this is almost like a gaming environment, right? And what happens if you start to map the emotional aspects of history onto this stuff? Like this is sort of my question is once we get to a place where, because they will, you know, that, that that's probably what they, where they'd like to get to is to map, um, map the sentiment analysis onto the history. And if they can do that with like intergenerational trauma, um, what that would mean for at attaching people to a certain geography and then applying the emotional intensity of that place onto people that live there. Um, and so it's fascinating as a storytelling device, but if you start to layer in this as part of someone's personal story and put that into the predictive modeling, it starts to get pretty scary. So, okay, so I'm gonna go back to reading. Uh, so in, um, so, and again, that's coming out of Rice and Rice is a center for bio nano engineering and, and interesting that the Houston embassy is even a part of that. I don't know if anyone out there is, like knows much about why Houston, Texas would have like inroads in Brazil, but that's kind of interesting. Um, uh, so in the United States and in Scotland, uh, which is tapped to be the first ACEs, which is adverse childhood experiences, ACEs aware nation, there has been a huge push to screen for these ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and score the results using a tool created by Kaiser Permanente, a health system that is now a leading voice on social impact investing. You can read my 2019 post about pay for success finance and ACEs scorings here. A quick search for Adverse Childhood Experiences plus screening plus Brazil results in numerous research studies carried out over the past five years. Trauma metrics in the scoring will be used to impose data-driven non-solutions on needy communities. Scientists have linked childhood trauma to changes in one's genetic profile, and they have carried out research in indicating epigenetic trauma carries across and accumulates over generations, which is significant for communities that have faced ongoing physical and economic violence. California's Governor Gavin Newsom, a lockdown fanatic whose campaign was funded by Silicon Valley and the San Francisco Pritzker family, J.B. Pritzker, Illinois' governor, sponsored the creation of James Heckman's Early Childhood Investment Equation, has been a heavy promoter of comprehensive ACEs screenings of anyone on Medicaid and for children. His appointment of Dr. to his appointment. Um, of Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris to the position of Surgeon General of California signaled that this would be a high profile issue for his administration. So will legacies of domination be factored into social impact deals that leverage their cumulative trauma for pay for success investor profit? Uh, check out MIT's Sensible Lab where favelas are mapped in 4D with devices that capture 300,000 data points a second. Rice's, Rice University's Historic Atlas of Social Relations in Rio and disturbingly Google's Rio Beyond the Map in partnership with Afro Reggae. The latter is backing the UBI eSports program, eSports gaming training program. I keep saying that it seems like the plan is to force the masses to live inside the CAAs or the Crown's mixed reality video game. And so when I see gaming interests teaming up with Google Map to twin or simulate favelas that are literally centerpieces of games like Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six Siege, Ubisoft 2016, it feels like that future is already here. 
smart cities and mixed reality gaming environments. In the game that hedge funds want to play with our lives, smart cities have been set up as social impact game boards with embedded nudges and omnipresent surveillance. I should know, I live in a city of pawns. IBM launched a $50 million three-year project in 2010 to build a smarter planet. 24 US cities received pro bono corporate consult consulting services. Philadelphia was onboarded in 2011 with a project that was somewhat surprising to me at the time. The smarted up infrastructure ending up, ended up being low-income youth placed on regional workforce career pathways called digital on-ramps. It was the early stages of blockchain badges tied to human capital finance, which has since evolved into learning lockers like Greenlight Credentials based in Dallas that runs on IBM's Hyperledger. Those quote-unquote free consultations were all about the market shaping. IBM held a Smarter Cities Global Conference in Rio in 2011. The opening presentation featured IBM's Rio Command Center, a centralized data hub built for risk analysis and coordination around natural disasters, security, traffic management, and municipal concerns. The catalyst for its creation was the devastating weather event of April 2010 that resulted in flooding and mudslides. The story goes that because of the disaster, a decision was made to create an exemplary global surveillance hub, uh, watchful eyes of the city. The unspoken plan was that the IBM model would be used to sell the concept to other cities through strategic media campaigns. Hundreds of visitors a month are brought through the facility, which is largely inaccessible to residents. After its work in Rio, the United Nations tapped IBM along with AECOM Engineering to design a template for disaster resilience scorecards. While ostensibly meant to better protect lives and economic activities in vulnerable urban areas, it is hard to set aside the World Bank's catastrophe bond product line launched in 2010, the same year as the command center. And then obviously since the time I wrote that, I've learned a lot more from uh, Leo about the other catastrophe bonds and the parametric insurance. By 2015, the program grew to include 30 municipal agencies, 147-inch high-def uh, screens, 1,000 surveillance cameras, 15,000 sensors, a geoportal system with 250 thematic layers, and Labrio, an e-citizen communication network of SMS messaging, social media apps, and digital civic participation. The emphasis on digital communications noted in a 2016 case study sponsored by the Inter-American Development Bank with support from the Korean Institute for Human Settlements, note Korea and Seoul being early metaverse pioneers, caught my eye. Notable was the attention given to social media interactions, specifically Twitter and Twitter alerts, Jack Dorsey being the recreation center donor that Greenwald was talking about. It appears the hub was tasked with refining digital twin operations, maximizing sensor, data, weather, traffic, etc., and joining it with layers with signals intelligence drawn on an array of electronic communications, OSINT, Open Signals Intelligence. Today, open source signal intelligence encompasses vastly more signals gathered from sensors embedded in the environment that interface with individual communication technology. Research into how to harness those signals and create systems of program behavioral nudging has been led by Alex Sandy Pentland, professor of social physics and the human dynamics at MIT Media Lab. And he's a collaborator with John Klippinger, who's in my descent map. Pentland is a leader in the digital identity space, collaborating on blockchain development and the World Wide Web Consortium. The Rio uh, Hub project also encompasses Data Rio, 
the Bloomberg What Works Open Municipal Data Protocol that needs to be put in place before the digital twinning can start. The collected metrics legitimize social impact investment deals under a deceptive banner of transparency and accountability. It is useful to note that Bloomberg Philanthropies has been active in Brazil. Projects include uh, Vision Zero planning for Sao Paulo and Fortaleza, uh, a national road safety plan, the 2014 Sao Paulo uh, Biennale Art Event, a 2015 Greenhouse Emissions Report prepared by Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, uh, the 2019 Mayor's Challenge Award for Mapping Rio's Favelas, uh, and investments in obesity prevention and fishery management in Fortaleza. Again, those are where the Palmas, Banco Palmas is. Perhaps most interesting in terms of timing, uh, given that it happened shortly before the pandemic was declared, is a four-year project with vital strategies to systematize and establish technology, including apps and AI databases, to document causes of death throughout the country. According to Jack Dorsey's spreadsheet, the foundation, his foundation made a $20 million contribution to vital strategies in June of 2020 and handed over another $18 million in October of 2020 for digital tools to, quote, fight the spread of COVID. Uh, Jose Luis Castro, executive director, has a background in public health research, having done stints with the World Health Organization and the New York Department of Mental Health and Hygiene. Through his work, he has established close relationships with Michael Bloomberg, and global aid organizations in the United States and the United Kingdom. The emphasis on, is on preventive care as a health investment. Vital Strategies Resolve to Save Lives was touted by the Center for High Impact Philanthropy at the University of Pennsylvania, here in my hometown, as a best bet for high impact philanthropic investment. In, stories, in a Stories from the Field propaganda piece, we see the United Nations Information Centers and Habitat program enmeshing itself in the favelas, spreading their COVID containment narratives with murals, t-shirts, and slick messaging campaigns intended to look homespun and emphasize uh, disingenuous values of collective care. A partner in this effort is the Oswaldo Cruz Foundation, which was started in 1898 to create serums uh, related to the bubonic plague and implement sanitation campaigns. Based in Rio, it now has over 7,500 7, employees and is one of the largest public health organizations in the world, hardly a disinterested party. I've done extensive research into how preventative health metrics, care metrics for chronic illness like asthma, diabetes, heart and lung disease, conditions often caused or exacerbated by environmental pollution, um, endemic violence and economic stress are being woven into data-driven social impact markets in the US. Under the guise of tracking population health, black and brown communities are being targeted for intense data surveillance. Communities defined by trauma and dispossession like the favelas represent valuable data deposits. These deposits are the foundation on which impact management projects will construct its sustainable empire of managed poverty. In the favelas, they have struck social impact digital gold, presuming they can get everyone on blockchain, uh, which is what the health passports are meant to accomplish. I was asked to write about this issue a year ago by the Urban Global Health Alliance, and you can go here for more details. Uh, one paragraph really stood out for me in the UN Stories from the Field article, and this is a quote. The Social Territories Program, implemented by uh, Perriero Passos Institute in partnership with the United Nations Program for Human Settlements, aims to reduce the risk posed to vulnerable families living in Rio's 10 largest slums. 
The project implemented by the municipality of Rio de Janeiro in partnership with UN Habitat identifies people who are extremely vulnerable in the capital of the state of Rio de Janeiro and directs them to public services or cash transfer programs in the midst of the pandemic. The search for these people previously made in person is now conducted by telephone. More than 1,600 calls have been made to date, close quote. So this aligns with the push for digital welfare systems. And in the US, this transition has been advanced by the Zuckerberg-backed Benefits Data Trust. In Philadelphia, that effort is called Benefili, and it operates in, with community partners, including Project Home, a Catholic supportive housing organization that was the first nonprofit in the city to adopt pay for success finance. So uh, green finance, digital twins, and what works government. Peter Head, executive chairman of Arup, leads uh, the Ecological Sequestration Trust. The organization, which calls itself a resilience broker, was a Rockefeller Foundation effort put together during a series of meetings held at their Bellagio Conference Center starting in 2015. That's the same place where the Global Impact Investment Network was formed in 2007. A new financial fiction is environmental green bonds. That fiction is required to channel trillions of dollars of concentrated wealth previously poured into toxic real estate deals into projects aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Head tees up, tees up all of this with a convenient roadmap that drives us into a new urban social contract. The preface of EST's document was written by Jeff Sachs, a professor of economics, which is home to Columbia University, uh, where technocracy was birthed, and a special advisor to South Korean diplomat and former secretary of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon. Sachs presented at the Vatican's Connectivity is a Human Right Conference in 2017. Because you can't have a digital democracy or social impact investment markets if your cyber citizens are not plugged in. They start the paper with the final goal, 17, partnerships. The climate slash sustainability narrative is about remaking society into a fully cybernetic system to run gambling bets on everything from natural disasters to prescribed behaviors to health crises and all can be tweaked using digital twin simulations to create desired outcomes, good and bad. It is a totally rigged game created by self-aggrandizing partners. To them, humans and the natural world are merely game pieces. And if those in power successfully paint their machinations green, it appears many people are ready to allow the game to continue. The Ecological Sequestration Trust devised systems management software called Resilience.io that layers information about a region's economics, government policies, resources, and development plans to evaluate social benefit on a variety of dashboards. Peter Head's intent is to usher in a new ecological age where gamified platforms could be used to track social relations in circular economies. Metrics will be used to construct cost offsets needed before ESG, environmental social governance investors, can profit from offering Band-Aid fixes for the environmental harm uh, and poverty they had a hand in creating. Billion from, building from the initial carbon credit premise of assigning value in non-traditional ways, the door has been thrown open for the creation of natural asset corporations, just starting to be traded on Wall Street. Analysts assign everything on the planet a price associated with its destruction, and thus, by not destroying everything right away, those running the machine are able to continue to draw out value as they replace the natural with the synthetic. Six years later, Rockefeller's 100 Resilient Cities morphed into complementary groups, the Global Resilient Cities Network and Resilient Cities Catalyst. 
the first a collective of 200 city resilience officers working with global financial interests active in the region, such as uh, IDB, the Inter-American Development Bank Innovation Lab, Avina Fundacion, CAF Development Bank of Latin America. Uh, EDB, uh, sorry, Economic Development Board of Singapore is a core funder. And so it seems that the planned cybernetic city model, Brazil currently has three cities participating in this network, Salvador, Rio de Janeiro, and Porto Alegre. Resilient Cities Catalyst, on the other hand, is tasked with getting policies in place to channel global capital into data-driven sustainable impact markets through lobbying, strategic convenings, and change agent training. They focus on refining resiliency tools and lining up pilot public-private partnerships that will later be brought to scale through their diverse community of practitioners. Judith Rodin, former University of Pennsylvania president and Rockefeller Foundation head, who led the creation of the Global Impact Investment Network, is the board chair. The founding principal is Michael Berkowitz, coordinator of the initial effort. Prior to that, Berkowitz served as the global head of operational risk management for Deutsche Bank after serving as deputy commissioner of the Office of Emergency Response in New York during Bloomberg's administration. You see, I keep saying Michael Bloomberg. Everybody needs to be paying more attention to Michael Bloomberg. So many climate and equity programs emerged after the UN SDGs were adopted in 2015, it's impossible to keep track of all of them. I do want to point out considerable overlap between the above two programs and C40 cities. In the latter, cities earn their membership by documenting emission reductions. The four participating cities in Brazil are Salvador, Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, and uh, uh, Curitiba. What's important to know about this effort is Bloomberg Philanthropies is a lead funder, which means the evidence-based solutions will be imposed are actually about harvesting impact data so that markets to hedge and trade offsets, uh, trade offsets can be devised, not just the carbon offsets, but offsets related to supposed equitable futures, which is really privatized social welfare. This is euphemistically described as financing the green uh, transition. In addition to Bloomberg, another strategic partner is the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. The organization's website states CIFF's activities in Brazil include renewables, uh, renewables uptake, air quality, and preservation of the rainforest. But I'm sure that early childhood and home visit programs cannot be far behind. Child Health and Development, uh, UNSDG 3 and 4, and Girl Capital, UNSDG 5, are both li listed as priority areas. We know that they are targeting children with the goal of reducing their lives to quantifiable data commodities. ESG portfolio assets, pliable human capital to be molded as dutiful citizens of the metaverse. You can read more about Bloomberg's What Works Government approach in a piece I wrote in the summer of 2018. It is a testament to the mind control exerted by Extinction Rebellion that so many blindly follow quote-unquote green leaders, not realizing that green is cash in the pockets of defense contractors, tech companies, and financiers profiting from Build Back Better nanotechnology, synthetic biology, and spatial web ubiquitous computing that binds the fiction together. COVID provided us with a front row seat for what uh, tyranny by dashboard looks like if they can convince people to live their lives in confined, isolated spaces, primarily through screens, the psychological warfare campaigns are more readily de deployed. The data analysts working for the billionaires want us to believe in a surreality conjured up on digital interfaces more than we trust our own senses and our own instincts. 
A global project requires global standards, which brings me to an important article written by Raul Diego of Silicon Icarus, A Permanent State of Exception, NIST's Critical Role in Smart City Development. Roll highlights the National Institute of Science and Technology's efforts to launch global pilots and refine open standards for cyber-physical systems, harmonizing proprietary devices so that they can communicate with one another in a straightforward plug-and-play manner. In the minutes from a 2014 virtual meeting of NIST administrators, Chris Greer, head of cyber-physical systems, provided updates regarding planning for Grid 3.0, with the smart grid interoperability panel that had representation from Korea, the EU, and Brazil. Test beds for cyber-physical systems were being set up at at that time, and they were planning for the launch of the Global Cities Team Challenge. That program did not involve public funding, but rather it was an opportunity for companies to compete, to coordinate with NIST to bring their products to scale. The cloud world has no borders, and neither does capital flowing into disruptive technologies. To facilitate markets and bring the metaverse online, digital infrastructure must be carefully orchestrated. Picture the transcontinental railroad's construction forcing the standardization of railroad gauges. In 2017, the National Coordination Office for Networking and Information Technology Research and Development presented a federal strategic plan for smart communities for for public comment. A detailed response was provided by IEEE regarding their efforts to transition governments around the world into smart infrastructures that center Internet of Things sensors and AI data analytics. IEEE has affiliated cities in Brazil, uh, Londrina and Natal, where they hosted their first, first smart city summer school for a week in 2017. There's also a smart city Natal developed by Planet Smart City based in London with Italian founders whose brand promise is new construction planned communities built around affordable housing. They have multiple projects in Brazil, India, and Italy. Stefano Buono Chair is an investor and a physicist, a physicist who happened to make his fortune in radio pharmaceutical, uh, in a radio pharmaceutical, <laughs> sorry. Stefano Buono, chair, is an investor and a physicist who happened to make his fortune in a radio pharmaceutical company he sold to Novartis. And then I have an image of Brazil unveils its newest smart city that puts people first. And that was May of 2019. That's this Natal. Reading between the lines of IEEE's comments, the technocratic foundations for social impact investing can be seen with this excerpt. Quote, It is also valuable to map and bind civic issues and progress against these issues with general metrics and indicator systems. This will allow a clear understanding of how elected government is performing in and around the quote classic way of working while allowing digital efforts and requirements with an initial goal of seeing how these can improve, enhance, or replace classic government methods. Okay, so they're saying it, right? Like, the plan is to, it's a managed demolition of electoral voting and governance as we know it in favor of tokenized cybernetics. Replace classic government methods sounds a bit like MIT Media Lab Cesar Adalgo, the idea that we will outsource our rights to AI digital twins to achieve radical direct democracy. Underpinning what they term real-time democracy is IEEE uh, P1451-99, IoT harmonization that bridges devices to different protocols, pulsing our personal data through the metaverse. If you read the descriptor, it speaks of global authenticated identities, 
authorizations, lifecycle management, interoperable communication, IoT discovery, and use of metadata to dynamically react to changing environments. It is vital that we understand that on the internet of everything, life is just another thing, whether a human life or a tagged bird or a tree or soil tracked through quantum dots. And then I have a screenshot from IEEE. With the steady hand of NIST on the wheel, there is considerable money to be made on smart infrastructure, the data it generates and pay for success financial deals, fictions built on top of that data. In a sense, market logic compels us to break down our previous mode of living to quote, build back better since this process creates opportunities for capital flows that would not be possible if we simply repaired our existing infrastructure. Last year, a piece in Bloomberg by Grandview Research estimated that five years from now, the smart cities market, which encompasses transit, construction, energy, healthcare, security, water, and assisted living, would be worth over $460 billion. As with post-war reconstruction, destroy civilizations and those with capital can pick up assets on the cheap, holding them until the subsidized rebuild is firmly underway to flip and sell on the upside. Now the war is the climate narrative, the COVID narrative, and the quiet weapons of frequency and particles existing beyond the average person's ability to perceive or even entertain if truth be told. Once we agree to run the world on dashboards, the algorithm will digitally twin the planet, the smarter planet IBM was after. Dassault recently created a twin for the city state of Singapore, the ultimate technocracy. Such a massive program of worldwide digital surveillance would never fly if the technocrats carrying out R&D and policy work acknowledged what it was, a permanent digital enclosure branded as a tokenized commons. Instead, for a decade, the efforts of the Global Cities Team Challenge participants have been spun as an ambitious program designed to improve lives, especially the lives of the poor and disenfranchised, by making us more connected. We are fast approaching an internet of everything age, in which the natural energetics of an interconnected universe are being overtaken by a militarized web. The engagement we are in is all about energy flows and consciousness too, but the global players in the energy sector are driving a transition to decentralized power, which is anything but just or green. All right, so that is, um, there we go. I, I was looking, I think I was trying to see if there were some questions. It's not really easy for me to like jump them out. I think uh, someone was asking like if the economy was just a fiction and yeah, they are fictions. They're all stories that, that are being told for certain purposes. Um, the old story gets ushered out and the new story gets ushered in and, and then the challenge is stepping out far enough that you can see it for what it is. Um, but anyway, I. I, I hope you guys appreciate this, this somewhat stale piece, but still seems very relevant. Um, like I said, we have a few more things coming up, both with, um, I have a plan to talk about some things with Cliff coming up. Uh, we have Jason and Leo and I are gonna be talking about uh, Web3 and digital public goods. And then I'm gonna do a little bit of an introductory with my friend Brandy about what uh, Florida not being exactly what everybody thinks it is and what um, sort of smart city, uh, real estate makeovers look like on the ground as a working class person who's who's awake and, and understands the bigger picture um, and is uh, making the people who would rather keep the bigger picture concealed uh, 
a thorn in their side um, in, in what that feels like. But anyway, so thanks for joining in, everyone. Uh, <laughs> uh, till the next time.